You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Sierra Archaeology Podcast, episode 149 for November 7th, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to Vishal Agarwal, the author of Give to Get, a senior leader's guide to navigating corporate life. So get your leadership on because the Sierra Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good morning. Doug in Scotland. Hey guys. Sonia in Utah. Hello everyone. And East Coast Bill in Maryland. Hi there. <laughs> I forgot to say West Coast Bill for uh, for Bill White. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, joining us also today, uh, we haven't had a guest in a while, uh, and, and, and the publisher uh, for this person joining us contacted me because I think they contact a lot of podcast hosts and they're like, hey, you know, new book coming out, you wanna check this out? And my first instinct was, well, it doesn't really fit with what we're doing, but send me a copy of the book if you want to, and, I, and I'll take a look at it. And and then I read the book and realized that this has absolute applicability to our field. And uh, and if you want to see it and, and read through this, take a look in the show notes. We'll have a link to the book in there, of course, so you can go pick it up. But it's all about leadership. It's all about leadership and sort of navigating corporate lifestyle, which as contract archaeologists, we all navigate some sort of corporate lifestyle, whether we like it or not, even if you were the small company. And uh, before we get into that, though, let me introduce our guest. Uh, our guest today is the author of Give to Get, a Senior Leader's Guide to Navigating Corporate Life, Vishal Agarwal. Vishal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Yes. And I'm going to read your biography real quick, but then we'll have you um, talk about your experiences before we really get into the book. So Vishal has lived uh, the entire corporate life cycle from an intern to senior deals partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Until recently, Vishal was a global top 500 senior leader for General Electric before becoming chairman and CEO of Full Circle Africa. Vishal has navigated all facets of corporate life over his storied 24-year career. So Vishal, before we get into the book, I, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, why I think this is a good fit for CRM archaeology. So CRM in our context stands for Cultural Resource Management. Most of the archaeology in the United States and, and in some other countries as well is done by professional contract archaeologists, not academics or university professionals like people tend to think that, that aren't in this field. It's done by people who are, who are doing this as a job, you know, at nine to five. Well, not always nine to five, but as a, as a regular daily job. And we uh, we have the unique circumstance of you know in the lower echelons of our of our uh, structure where we have field technicians, crew chiefs, uh, even project managers. We're often working from job to job for different companies. You know, navigating you know ten different companies during a field season and 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 working for them for short periods of time, sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months, and we have to constantly sort of navigate these these situations that we have to deal with. And that's why I thought your book was incredibly important because we have people that are that are salaried permanent employees and they're dealing with temporary employees all the time. We have temporary employees that are trying to make, you know, make a make a name for themselves within a few week time span so they can maybe get hired back on or hired again. And they have to they have to really watch these relationships that they have or they burn bridges really fast and they're never hired on again, uh, ever again. So that's why I think, and I've got a bunch of notes on some stuff I want to go into later here, but before we do all that, why don't you give our listeners uh, a little bit of an expansion on your biography and uh, and why you decided to write this book? Sure. So uh, thank you again for having me. I was born in Bombay, grew up in the States, uh, first job with Legacy Price Waterhouse. I did privatization work. Uh, I was a deals guy. And then I had this opportunity, I was an emerging market specialist. I had this opportunity to come and build a business um, out in Africa. My wife is is from this this part of the world, and we took this chance in 2004. What was meant to be a 15 month assignment has become 15 years. We've made our permanent home now here in Kenya, and after sort of 25 years of corporate life, which included PricewaterhouseCoopers, as as you talked about earlier, Chris, as well as uh, General Electric, uh, I thought this was a good time to 
kind of go back full circle to my entrepreneurial roots. And that's why I call my firm Full Circle. And, and often I find that uh, we get as corporate people, uh, salaried employees, we kind of get sucked into this everyday rhythm of our corporate world without understanding why we're traveling, why we do what we do, mm-hmm. what, what our true objectives are, what, the, what are the outcomes and relationships we really seek to drive, and let alone what our overall goals and aspirations are. In some ways, I think we get, may I say, addicted to our paychecks, right? <laughs> and we right. lose perspective, we lose courage, and perhaps we also lose the the essence of the artisan skills that we've built and how they can translate into something that we would really like to do ourselves. So I'm not calling on people to necessarily follow my path, but you know, continue to recalibrate and, and make sure that they find a work environment that's full of relationships, trust, and overall fulfillment for themselves. So the, the parallel to our field is, you know, you, you do have people going into those corporate environments, just like you have in the book here. Um, but that's really, that's really kind of not the norm, right? Uh, occasionally, you'll end up in a bigger company in this corporate structure, and you'll be dealing with stuff like this. So, so when I'm reading your book, and I'm seeing um, things like corporate leader, and executive and things like that, I'm actually translating this into uh, even just a, a field technician, a lowest level that we have in our in our field, or crew chief, which is a leader of you know maybe four to you know a few more people, and then project manager who's leading a bunch of crews and overall charge of the project, and then principal investigator who is often in small companies the owner of the company as well, but they're also the one you know responsible for business development and things like that, and and, and then larger companies will have a number of principal investigators who may or may not be owners and then maybe owners over the top of that, so that's what I'm. That's the the lens through which I'm I'm looking at this book, sure. And a good example of that is, um, and I've got page number references here for anybody who who's picked up the book and is listening to this. Uh, on page twenty three, you you reference a story talking about uh, the difference between a, a goat being a goat and a lion, <laughs> and I really like this analogy. And uh, and I took you know you talked about being a lion in the conference room and, and somebody who um, who steps into that sort of business um, archetype of a lion, like you said. And I I wrote a note down here. That said, you know, really looking at that from a field perspective, um, also in the office and then and then when getting jobs, you know, because as I mentioned, you know, you're, you're talking to people who are possibly trans- transferring from one corporation to another in a, in a high executive position. But a lot of our people, like I said in the beginning, they could have 10 jobs in a year and that's the norm. You know, they go from company to company to company, always hoping for kind of a full time position, but the the usual life cycle is, you know, you're there to do the field work. There's 30 people hired to do the field work and there's only like four full-time employees. And you're just moving from company to company doing that, hoping at some point to get that full-time job. But to do that, you have to kind of be that line, as you mentioned in that story, and uh, and really put yourself out there and make a name for yourself. Can you talk about that, the the lion and the goat story real quick so our listeners know what the, what the heck I'm talking about? First, to kind of rebase and and tell the story, right? So yes. um, I live I live out in Kenya. Um, made sense for me to think in terms of a <laughs> savannah safari metaphor. And and here goes the story that if you travel out to my region or uh, live here and uh, sort of want to visit our game parks and go out to the Maasai Mara, for instance, which is considered the seven wonder, wonder of the world. If, if you go out and visit and you see all this game and you do not get a picture or a sighting of a lion, your friend mm-hmm. will probably tease you, laugh at you, and you yourself will probably <laughs> feel that you wasted tens of thousands of dollars on the strip coming all the way out to Kenya, coming all the way out to the region and not seeing a lion, right? So if you mm-hmm. think about that lion, you think about the the uh, the gravitas of the lion, you see the courage of the lion, you see you know, how the lion carries himself. And in contrast, if you actually think about the goat, when I think about the goat, the only thing I can kind of really think about, the first thing that comes in, into my mind is a food dish, a biryani, right? So you think about 
you know, this food dish or any other food dish that that you could imagine goat to be, stew or anything else. That's perhaps the only thing that comes into my mind when I think about a goat. So mm-hmm. goats are restless. Goats run around helter-skelter. Goats yip-yap. In, in your work environment, goats lack courage. They make noise. They run around the office. They don't have direction. They don't make decisions. And when a lion is faced by a difficult time, we all are, so is the lion. When a lion is cornered, and for example, if you YouTube it, you'll see, you know, uh, for veterinarian reasons, if a lion has been moved from one part of a game park to another and is being tranquilized, I promise you the head rises. There's a rise in the body in the most difficult mm. of times. In contrast, if you think about the goat, and perhaps as listeners, I would encourage you to YouTube this. So if you go and look at a goat being slaughtered, I promise you the DNA of the goat is the, the you know the actual neck of the goat, the head of the goat, the neck of the goat actually goes down as it's being mm. slaughtered. You know, for whatever, pardon, pardon me, I would say to the vegetarians and vegans, but, you know, for whatever meat reasons, <laughs> if they're being slaughtered, that's what happens to the goat. So what does that do? It mm-hmm. says the DNA of the lion is one of courage. So be the lion, because I believe there are only two kinds of people in the work environment, a lion or a goat. Now, a lion doesn't have the corner office. The lion doesn't have to be the senior guy. The lion doesn't have to display power all the time, right? But most people kind of take the notion of the lion and think, oh, top of the food chain. So the lion can only be the boss. To your point, the lion can't be the field engineer. That's not true because there are only two kinds of people mm-hmm. at work and it's not that the lion is senior, the lion is everybody that has courage. Yeah, I, I very much liked the, this, uh, this metaphor simply because um, when I'm walking into a room with a room or out into the field with a large crew, um, I don't need to be loud. Everybody knows that I'm the boss simply because I'm there, I'm present, and I'm speaking with authority. I don't need to speak loudly. And what I've noticed is a lot of a lot of our crews, a lot of a lot of folks who are dis, uh, who are uh, disgruntled, let's say that, they squawk a lot, mm-hmm. and they're squawking because they're concerned and they're angry and they're upset and they're mad. The difference between that lion and that goat is that if if someone has the courage to make a change for themselves instead of squawking about things all the time, they're actually they're actually going to stop. They're going to go, okay, uh, I need to take control of this situation and make movement. That doesn't necessarily mean they're resigned. Uh, mm-hmm. They're resigned to their fates. They're going to say, okay, I need to reevaluate my position. I need to reevaluate what I'm doing. And that squawking that they're making, that the, the goat noises, if you want to call it, you, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, that the the anger and the resentment and the verbalization of all of that, they tend to quiet down, look inward, and say, okay, I'm going to bring out my power here. And you know, I noticed that growing up in this, <laughs> growing up and developing my own. I don't know if I'd want to call it authority or my own courage, um, but simply stopping and saying, no, I do have power. It changes my entire demeanor. My shoulders set back. I am, I am, I walk with authority. Um, I move forward. I make a decision. I, uh, I don't need to speak loudly um, about that decision. I simply say, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, those that that are concerned, they come to speak to me, and I'm usually open to that. I mean, uh, in your book, uh, Vishal, you you mentioned that that uh, a lion can be a very powerful thing, but also it's it's very patient with the, its pride and its cubs, and uh, sometimes they get a little unruly and. 
the lion has to step back, kind of take a breather and go, okay, it's, this is a young person. This is a young thing. This is something that needs to be taught something. Mm-hmm. That's how I kind of read through this. That's right. So, yeah, and, and to nuance that, I, you know, I talk in the book quite a bit about seventh leadership. So today I feel contemporary leadership is a seventh leadership. So to your point of authority, everybody knows that you're empowered, that you have the business card and the boss title, but to display it is, I think, not contemporary. So rather than being authoritative, to be decisive, provide guidance, be inspiring, and be mentor-like is far more effective, in my humble view, than being instructive, being authoritative, being talking down to some of your points, Sonia. So, so well, I, I hope I didn't the world has just changed. make it sound like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, the the patience and the and the adding the perspective is it goes along with what you're saying, Vishal. Yeah. It's it's the it's not about being condescending or talking down to someone. It is empowering them to become better. Exactly right. Exactly right. Vishal, along these lines, a lot of times people in the field will, especially on a, on a field project where we hire a bunch of temporary people to do this job. Uh, if it's maybe say a month long, so you're going to have time to to get to know them, and and you know have some time to work with them. A lot of people tend to take the tactic of being sort of boisterous and loud and out there. And I'm, I'm going to admit I've been that person in the past as well, as as a way to have yourself be 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 seen, right? Be be observed amongst the crowd, amongst the herd, to be recognized, and then hopefully maybe asked on for another session, or elevated to another position, or brought into the company uh, as a, a in the best case scenario as a permanent employee. Now, how how would you suggest, um, or what do you think in this in this field of very temporary, very short term actions, how somebody can make themselves stand out without? without really kind of being a jerk about it, <laughs> to be blunt. That's a very good question. And I think there are two pieces to this. One is the role of the leader as the leader faces that sort of pack, if you will, right? So if you see, you know, your pride, so to speak, and you have someone who's, you know, young and restless and trying to get attention, how you reward that person, how you recognize that person, how you engage with that person sets the tone for how others perceive they will get recognized. They will get empowered. So there is a role for the leader in how they engage with people, right? So there's that one part. And the other part is for the employee, right? For the young person, the team. So I talk a lot about at developing relationships, giving in those relationships, building trust, winning people over by uh, sharing, by collaborating. And I think it, while, while the work life might seem like the popularity contest at your high school, it actually is not. While it might seem akin to that, it, it really is about developing deep relationships and trust to deliver transactional pieces, to deliver outcomes every day, right? Mm-hmm. So, so to, to be able to demonstrate, because, you know, you might be faced by folks that say, well, they're really hard workers or they're artisans that excel, that they really know their trade, um, and that should be enough. Well, it's not anymore. It's mm-hmm. whether you're junior or senior, how you truly lead. So you could be the most junior person on the team, but leadership is not by title. So how you actually collaborate with people, how you actually give to others in your relationship, as I talk about in my book a lot, will drive your success and recognition and reward, in my humble view. Okay. Well, I I think we may have some more comments on that, um, but for now, we are going to take our first break and come back with Vishal Agarwal on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists, have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. 
We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 149. And we have as a guest the author of Give to Get, A Senior Leader's Guide to Navigating Corporate Life, Vishal Agarwal. And Vishal, when we left off the last segment, you mentioned servant leadership, which is something you talk about uh, near the end of the book. And uh, I I wonder uh, if anybody's following along on page 96, you kind of have a a servant leadership uh, checklist. And uh, I'm in the Civil Air Patrol, and we actually just had a national conference a couple months ago where servant leadership was the primary topic of conversation. And I didn't realize it, but that's kind of the leadership style that I have un- until I really realized what we were talking about here. And and I wonder, I, I think CRM archaeology could really benefit from more people who think that way. But because of the sort of cutthroat nature of our business, where everybody is scrambling for different jobs, I feel like servant leadership is a real hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. So can you explain a little bit more about what servant leadership is and then maybe how somebody could could be a servant leader and have that leadership style in a business that is so uh, that is so cutthroat for jobs? Sure. Look, if you think about my grandfather's time, I'm in my mid 40s. So if you want to sort of picture that mid 40s in denial, but if you think about my late, <laughs> late, late grandfather's time, you know, when he was about my age, right, and mm-hmm. he was a leader, that style of leadership in that time was a required authoritative leadership. And one of the reasons why it was the kind of leadership of the day, because the number of degreed, educated, well-skilled people around leaders like my grandfather in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, I meant 1950s and 60s, was, as you could probably imagine, very small. The number of Harvard-trained, Princeton-trained, Oxbridge people, engineers galore around us, you know, surpass our education and skills every day, whether we accept it or not. So let Mm -hmm. alone the millennial factor. So the way we interact with these people, the way we get them to drive outcomes has to be very different than my grandfather's time. So to pull out, for example, I am the boss, doesn't work. To say, do it my way, right? As opposed to let's do this together. To have visible favorites, for example, to sort of say, and a lot of leaders make this mistake. They, they know the guys that are toiling for them and drive great outcomes. Those are the ones that they give big bonuses to, send them on trips, give them nice assignments, easier, cozier work, put them in front of their clients. To demonstrate that you have visible favorites is not contemporary and is a sure shot to career suicide. Okay? They don't get into frontal mm-hmm. conflicts. Leaders today, servant leaders, never get into frontal conflicts. They don't get into arguments or you know, in a public manner with subordinates, with colleagues, with peers, um, they believe that that could really damage their reputation, for instance. They don't create silos and fiefdoms, right? It's it's common that from a team standpoint, you know, you, you'll find leaders that drive, you know, this is our department, we should stick together, we're one team, let's not worry about the engineers, the other guys should should do their part. We'll do our part. So creating those silos and fiefdoms is just not contemporary. Playing horizontal is what I call for, right? And then right. lastly, leaders that talk about uh, talk out of both sides of the mouth. You know, one great example is leaders that pretend that the door is always open, but they actually are not accessible, right? So, or that they have. A, a different set of rules for the team and different rules for themselves, right? That's just not contemporary. So those are some examples of of how leadership has changed and why we must all be servant leaders to our teams today. Mm-hmm. Now, on the break, we were talking about another style of leadership, spa leadership, that I think uh, Bill White had a comment on. But why don't you tell us what, what that is? <laughs> 
Right, look, you know, I often have seen over the course of my career that, you know, people that uh, get promoted and get fancier titles as time goes by feel that they have paid their dues. It is someone mm-hmm. else's time now that they can sit on their backside and instruct. So think about the spa leader getting a massage while their team is is and it's more uh, it's more a way to kind of you know visualize the point as opposed to think of it literally. But think about you know the spa leader you know enjoying a massage while the team is toiling night and day to get a proposal out to get some deliverables out of the door. The spa leader out on vacation while the team not having a single weekend off. Right. Mm -hmm. And just because you get to seniority, this notion that um, you can now take it easy is just the biggest fallacy. Right. Because good leaders that I've observed actually get more and more and more busy as time goes by. The work life balance for senior people as time goes by, the responsibility doesn't end. And that's what you're talking about. It's not the title and the promotion it is the responsibility of others that that you know senior leaders carry yeah i'm glad you would say something about that because in my new role as a uh, professor um i encounter a lot of uh students who i think i think that they believe that if they finish their phd then their job and career path will be easier that they'll be able to get an easier, more prestigious job that they won't have to do the lowly duties of excavating uh, small, you know, test pits or managing budgets or having to look for uh, outside funding or any of the stuff that is associated with cultural resource management. Basically, they think that if they get a PhD, they'll become a professor. And by becoming a professor, they won't have to do any of the menial tasks, right? Now, on the other hand, the reality is there are not even close to enough. Uh, tenure track jobs for all the PhDs that are being created. And so um, a lot of people are finishing and they don't really have any of the skills that they need to survive in cultural resources because they never practiced them when they were actually in college. So I, for years doing cultural resources, I, I heard many times that companies didn't want to hire PhDs because they felt like they were going to want to be spa leaders. They were going to want to sit back in the truck on their phone, doing emails and not actually out there doing any of the hard work. So um, I think that it's great that you mentioned that whole spa leadership thing, because if 90% of the people who finish a PhD go on to do cultural resource management and when they get there, they feel like they need to be spa leaders because they have a PhD and no one else does. That's a career suicide move, I feel. Well, and this is a this is a common vision of archaeology, too, in general. I mean, think about the archaeologist of 100 years ago in Africa, of all places, Vishal, where you've got your little canvas tent, you're sitting behind your desk, and people are out there toiling and bringing you things to work on, and you're writing and doing the high-level stuff. And that's that's just like the common image that the general public has of an archaeologist, that in Indiana Jones, of course. but. Right. You just played back Raider with a lost art to me in my head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now he was he was actually doing the work. So there you go. You know, he wasn't uh, doing what his colleagues were doing. But yeah, that is that is a common view of archaeology. And I think Bill, that it's not just PhD students, as you know, um, Vishal. Every single one of us on this call has at least a master's degree, and there's two PhDs on the call as well. And right. so we, we we have advanced degrees in archaeology, which is really a small percentage of people in this field. And I think a lot of people that don't have one of those graduate degrees, they think that if they do get the graduate degree, they will be able to sit back. They'll get the they'll get the full time job. They'll be able to take it a little easy. Which those of us that have one will tell them that that's that's absolutely not true. And if you are doing that then you probably don't have a very good team under you. And I speak to that in my book. So, for example, if you want page reference, if you look at page 55, there's something I call the bullseye syndrome, right? So Mm, so if if I would try to build on your example of uh, the academic world build. So if you are a new teaching assistant, let's say, you probably have a nice bullseye to my metaphor on your back, meaning people say, oh, this guy is now 
you know, got to a certain level equivalent or maybe some sort of, you know, manager in corporate life. And therefore he becomes, she or he becomes a target because people want that job. As they get mm-hmm. a little more sort of, you know, progress a little more to your, to your example, perhaps of, you know, the next level of PhD student, you know, that bullseye grows. And, and with all due respect, Bill, if they become a professor, a fully tenured professor, they don't have a bullseye anymore. From head to toe, they get painted <laughs> as a bullseye. So if you're the CEO, if you're the leader, you have no bullseye on your back anymore. Your entire self is the bullseye. So for those that think that as they get more senior, life becomes easier, you know, look at look at CEOs that don't deliver two quarters in a row on Wall Street. And all you have to do is look at that as an example for how quickly people are shown the door. That That is so true. Uh, and that these are, man, these are all, these are such common problems in archaeology. And uh, and, and trying to solve these is is pretty tough. Um, I, I'm curious as to the thoughts of some of the others that haven't that haven't spoken yet. Um uh, East East Coast Bill, you've worked in in some high corporate environments and uh, and other stuff during your archaeology career. Do you have any insights into some of these leadership strategies that we're talking about? When I look at these things, I always see this. You know, you have your both your internal cust- you know, your clients, your 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 people you're serving, and sort of your external. So internally, mm-hmm. like what was talked about in the book, not only are you trying to build relationships with those who you you are are, are in charge of. Um, but you also need to look out. Um, one of the things I liked when you point out in the book was sort of, you know, also taking time to make sure to give credit to those above you um, because you are part of a sort of a continuum uh, mm-hmm. in, in the work process. Also, uh, some of the other interesting things were sort of the discussions of sort of the, the horizontal, being able to to work with people you don't necessarily have direct influence over and sort of that it's not necessarily mentioned here, but the idea of like soft power of trying to like influence others who you don't necessarily have the same controls of, 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 you know, the structured controls. I'm thinking I've spent a lot of time sitting in sort of boardrooms and tables on sort of uh, project management uh, projects where I am the sole representative of all things archaeology and CRM. And I'm sitting at a table with, with engineers, construction managers and project managers and accountants and, and regulatory representatives and all those individuals have all their sort of siloed individual goals, um, but we're all contributing to a certain particular project, whether it's a development project where we have been brought in to cover one particular regulatory hurdle of. But, you know, sort of that idea of like, you know, moving beyond sort of the dynamic of, of, the, of the manager, employee, the manager, senior managers to the idea of being a manager makes you representing your company and then using that into to people who are not necessarily going to be familiar with what you do, why you do it, and why it is important that you have a seat at that table. I think, Bill, that's that's you know that's spot on. It's a really good point. You know, today corporates and teams around the world, big and small, talk about or understand the need to pull together, to work horizontally to work seamlessly, whatever word you want to use, but seldom actually practice it, right? So when it comes down to it, they are very comfortable with building empires and and fiefdoms as opposed to practicing going horizontal. So to your example, if you find yourself in that boardroom and have done a lot of work outside that boardroom to build relationships across the accountants, across the engineers, across the whole you know gamut of people that that represent your stakeholders, then you become essential to driving outcomes. You become Mm -hmm. essential to the relationships, the trust, and that boardroom, as an example. So that's just good practice, but it also drives business outcomes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I I mean, I notice most is sort of when that doesn't work. Um, say, for instance, um, you're, you're part of a development project where a construction crew is going to come in and put in some infrastructure, whether it's as simple as putting in some utility lines or you're talking about a major pipeline project. I've seen things go bad when one, either from the construction side, they don't understand why the archaeologist is there. They haven't taken the time to find out what we do and why we need to do it. 
in order to make move it efficiently. But I've seen it the other way around, where the archaeologists don't understand why the construction people have their schedules and their pressures on them in, in the way that they do. So, sort of your idea of like you know, with with the stakeholder map and building relationships. Um, it's essential. It's not just important enough that that person does a job for you. you. You have to have the empathy to understand why they are doing the things that they do and what can you do to help them so that they can in turn help you. Right. And, and then often having to observe also, Bill, that people get insecure, right? They think, well, why is the archaeologist there? It's not his job. Or why is the engineer there? Is he kind of, are they walking on my turf? And they get into that kind of political, emotional conflict. But mm -hmm. to, to your own point, if you've taken the time to build the relationships, work through something like a stakeholder map, like I talk about in my book, then there is trust. And people know that you're not there to take over their jobs or, or tread on their toes, but, but you're actually pulling together to help. So building that trust and relationship outside of work, outside of that transactional task is really critical. That's that's a good point to actually take our next break and uh, fix a little audio issue we're having with Doug Rocks McQueen. And we'll come back on the other side for a slightly longer third segment and wrap up this discussion with Vishal Agarwal. Back in a second. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Are you tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, final segment of episode 149. And Vishal, one of the things I noted in your book, and for those following along, page 67, you talked about stakeholders and and in this particular chapter. But the thing I took about this was noting uh, of the people around you, um, who are your supporters of yours, detractors, and influencers, and 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 noting you know, how to deal with those people and and how to make that, uh, I guess, probably to your advantage and to, and to help them out as well. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I feel a lot of people go into work really in knowing that there are three kinds of people around them, okay? And I talk about it in the book, and those are ambassadors. These are fans of yours. These are people that align with your vision very quickly. Skeptics, they're fence, fence sitters. They haven't quite decided if they should support you or not. And the last being detractors. These people will perhaps even backstab you according to where you are in your own mindset related to them, right? So if you mm -hmm. go into work knowing that there are these three types of people in your teams and they, they, they exist and there are only three, then what do you do about everyone other than the ambassador. I know the answer to the first because we all love our ambassadors 
we all give them promotions and take them to client sites and give them the best jobs and the best responsibilities. What do we do about our skeptics? And more importantly, what do we do about the guys that we actually know are our detractors? And, and what I call readers in my book and listeners on your show, hopefully, to focus on is to spend all their energy with their detractors. If you think about a mountain and if the ambassadors are right on top, they've, they've got to the top of the hill or the mountain and your skeptics are somewhere in between. And if you visualize this, your detractors at the very, very bottom, the leader, in my humble view, doesn't go and stand at the top of the hill with his ambassadors, but is actually working with the detractors at the bottom of the hill to move everybody up. And that's mm -hmm. the true role of a good leader today, right? And, and maybe you will not succeed and still decide to, decide to cut someone or make a change in your team, but it should not be for the lack of trying. So how does how does this fit in with uh, on the break? We were talking about the role of the expert and bringing that up. How does this fit in with you've got maybe a young crew chief or even a field director in charge of a field crews and they're trying to navigate all this and they get somebody who's a real who's a real superstar. That's a field technician. You know, maybe they have a, a big following. Maybe they're just they've been a field technician for 20 years and they know everything about what they're doing. And this happens a lot. But you have somebody that can really let's say upstage you career wise, but they're below you in position in the company. How do people in that higher position work with somebody who's in that level without taking them down, you know, helping build them up, but also keep staying in their leadership role? Sure. Look, it's a, it's a difficult one. And we were talking about it at the break, as you said, and it's a question I ask intellects like you all, right? You have PhDs mm -hmm. and are very well qualified. And if you think about our social media driven world today, you know, some kid with 5 million followers on YouTube or 150,000 likes on Twitter has a higher, more meaningful voice than a lot of us, a lot of you as intellects, right? But the role of an expert today is really muddy because the view of this person with all these Twitter followers becomes more important than the voice of someone who you know, is truly qualified to speak to the topic. So, so finding your own voice goes to, in my view, authenticity, building trust. Um, and, and the one priceless asset that I talk about in the book, which is the most important, the, the one priceless asset that we all have, that hopefully we all have, that we haven't expended, wasted, thrown away, is our reputations. And I, mm -hmm. and, I, and I talk to people a lot about, you know, how that is more important than all the wealth in the world, how that is more important, actually, even more than your family. If there is one thing that is more important than anything you have, including your family, it's actually your reputation. So having that priceless golden reputation, I think allows, you know, experts to authentically stand out in a world that is becoming very noisy and muddied with fake news. Yeah. Yeah. I also think uh, building upon that, that, you know, we can lead by example, right? Because we actually are professional archaeologists. So, you know, all the time, every day we're out there just actually doing it for real. Um, if we spent all the time to do all the tweets and everything else, we wouldn't have time to actually, in fact, do archaeology. So those who are out there who want to be the superstars, at least in our field, they got to back it up by a lot of digging. <laughs> they got to find a <laughs> yeah. lot of stuff and they have to do a lot of writing uh, and a lot of podcasting and a lot of re outreach and, you know, trying to connect with communities and doing what we've been doing for years before they can before they can have the reputation that we have. So you're exactly right. Um, leading by example, that's the only way we can separate ourselves from them. So I think we we have something, there's something in the book around page 42, 43, that kind of goes along with this, which is something I think we deal with a lot. When you first get on a new crew, one of the things that always happens is people are throwing around stories, trying to find connections, you know, uh, talking about uh, experiences they've had on other crews, really kind of establishing themselves and almost their credibility as an archaeologist and as a as a field technician or crew chief or whatever the case they may, may be. But Vishal, you mentioned that um, sharing the same experiences does not necessarily build trust. That's the sentence that I underlined here. What 
what do you mean by that when you when you're talking about a leader and say people they're leading why doesn't sharing the same experiences and mentioning those things tend to build trust and and what can you do to help build trust it's not the resume it's not the we went to harvard together or you know we came from the same neighborhood in pittsburgh or whatever right i, th- mm-hmm. I think it is more than that it is um you know the scars that you have and the scars that i have and i'm not comparing my scars but i'm going to as a new crew chief going to not talk about mine respect yours and earn my scars on your watch so you mm-hmm. might you might be more junior than i am and you are the team but i'm going to demonstrate to you that i'm going to get soil under my nails and i'm going to earn your respect and trust by showing you what you didn't see of me elsewhere, not by talking about it, but demonstrating it in actions. And most Mm -hmm. people fail to do that. Most people flash their resumes, talk about experiences, will show pictures on their phone, right? Refer you to their LinkedIn CVs. That, (laughs) That doesn't win the trust. At the end of the day, that team was doing fine without you. Right? That team has its own culture. So for them to truly accept you, respect you, build trust with you, they've got to see that you have their back. They've got to see that you can take bullets for them. They've got to see that you get soil all over yourself, let alone under your nails. So I have a little story about that. I was uh, just talking last week with one of my new crew chiefs, and uh, he's been working with us off and on for about a year now. And... He, uh, when I told him, uh, we had a, a large project uh, come out in, in uh, central Mississippi, and and when I told him that I was sending out our field director, uh, who has a PhD, he his first reaction was, oh no, I'm going to have to babysit this guy. And what he told me last week was what he was most impressed with was not our uh, field director's uh, resume, or that, you know, maybe they had worked on similar projects and and had similar amounts of experience, but that not only could our PhD uh, clean house, essentially, not with crew, but like with, uh, with tasks. He got, he went out, he got his hands dirty, and not only did he get his hands dirty, he managed field projects and finished all of the same tasks that he was assigned as everyone else was assigned. So say we had 60 holes in a day that every single person had to do. Not only finished those holes, took the notes, took the photos, did everything the way it was supposed to be done, he stepped up and helped others complete their work as well. And it wasn't the resume. It wasn't the fact that this guy had a PhD. It was the fact that he could do the work. He, he set an example for the crew, and the crew respected that. And, and that, right. to me, shows good leadership. Um, it it kind of goes back to some of these points that you were, that you were talking about, about, you know, uh, take bullets for the team so that they don't have to. Um, uh, do the work with them. Prioritize, prioritize learning. Um, mm-hmm assist people and, you know, stand up for your crew. When you know your crew's doing a good job and somebody might be, you know, maybe a client or uh, another contractor is, is trying to slap you down, stand up for your crew. That part is what gave our, our PhD who in, who in many times in our field are considered people who don't know what they're doing because they have PhDs or they can just sit back and do nothing because they have PhDs. It, it, it changed the perspective of our crew because our PhD actually went out there and did the work. Uh, Sonia, I want to tell you a, uh, a like kind of story that happened to me recently uh, that, that I learned from. So I was on a, on a book tour in Dubai, I think. And at the back of my room was, uh, as I learned later on, uh, the fire chief from Philadelphia. So Fire Chief Adam Thiel was at the back of the room and in my book tour, and he asked me a question. He talked about the same subject, culture within the culture. And I engaged with him, and he is a fire chief from outside of the system, from outside of the city of Philadelphia. I think he's from Virginia originally, right? And he 
he over dinner told me the story of the last fire chief that was from outside of Philly. I promise you, was Benjamin Franklin. Right. <laughs> so all those years back. So, so when you talk about a community that really embraces its own, and you know, you don't have outsiders. Think about Adam Thiel going into that community from the outside, taking on this role. In the past, he heard of stories how deputy chiefs had had, you know, their, their cars burned or bad things happened to them and thrown out of the community because they were not accepted from a culture standpoint. So I said to Adam, hey, how did, how did you win these people over? And he talked about some of the same things that we're talking about here, setting examples, um, you know, working with his hands, building relationships, getting to know the names of, you know, his teammates, their spouses, understanding how old their children are, really getting under the skin of the community. Right. And that's just so important as transactional and fast moving our world has become, you know, to stop and actually build that relationship, having a high degree of mm -hmm. EQ is just so critical. That's that's also one of the ways that we have found um, to break through our detractors in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 I started typing this and I was a, a little cautious about it because sometimes if you can actually break through your detractors, they become our strongest champions. Um, they don't become skeptics. They move full-fledged into a champion of, of the work that you're doing. And to do that, you have to get to know them. So our detractors may be somebody who's like, I don't know, engineers, uh, people who are forced, and I put that in quotes, to work with us because it's the law, not because they want to or they want to preserve archaeology. Um, one, once you find common ground, um, you find projects that you may have worked similar on. It's not about the resume. It's about, it's about saying, hey, let's work together. My job's not to hold you back. My job is to help you move forward. So what can I do to help you do that? And actually mean it and do it. Follow through. These, these people who, who, who want to take away, who, who, who detract or to, uh, who fight against us, they, they start to turn and turn in a good way, hopefully, anyway. Mm -hmm. And they become our strongest champions. And I, I, I want, I mean, what crews, what our, what our field crews need to realize, and many don't, is that we are part just a small little cog in a huge wheel that is working to move a project forward. We're not just archaeology. We're part of a bigger, a bigger operation. And once we start working together rather than against one another, we start working better as a team. It applies both in our crews themselves and with the larger team, project team as well. So the question I had was about the sort of the idea you had there about finding your why, because I think, you know, part of you growing in your career, we are sort of our number one advocates. Um, so understanding why we are there, why we are doing what we were doing uh, and internalizing that, um, I think, uh, helps us a lot. Uh, you make a good example with the idea that we're either writing our resume or writing our eulogy uh, in your book. And maybe just uh, expand a little about that because I think a lot of people are externally looking for um, either the company or the job to sort of bring them satisfaction um, but it's through you know your your internally yourself finding your why that's how you're going to find satisfaction within your work sure and look some of my most profound moments my personal profound moments of the why question actually came to me from my home life Right. So on New Year's Eve, taking a phone call, it's the quarter end, New Year's Eve or not. <laughs> and and your, your, your spouse turning to you and saying, really, Vishal, why? <laughs> going, off on a, going off on another trip, right? Just come from one, going off on another. There's a school concert the next day. My 10-year-old looking my face and saying, you're going to Beijing? Why? 
right? And and the answers to those questions, I had no clue. Hmm. I don't have good answers to for myself, let alone to my family. And I think if you get there in in your career, then you know you have a white problem, as an example. And you know, for those of you that haven't read Simon Sinek's book, you know, start with why. I talk about it in my book. I I think you must go pick get yourself a copy because he he does a really good job in terms of channeling that question and helping you think through it. And and at and I think it's really important to be able to figure out at some point, at every point, that you're even killed with yourself, that you know what you're doing and why you're doing that, right? And it can't just be, you know, a simple answer that, oh, you know, this is how I earn a living. If I don't do this, then how am I going to put food on the table or your version of that? Those are all cop-outs. Those are all excuses, most people don't understand for themselves where they're going and why. And I'm, I was one of those. Mm-hmm. So finding a, finding a meaning to where you're going and what is it that you want to do every day, as you get more senior, it does matter, right? So, for example, being able to mentor others, to be able to give, to be able to share, to be able to you know, learn and collaborate – I think those are all really important things. And what what tends to happen and will happen to all your listeners, because we all grow older, whether we're denied like me or not, as we get as we get more older, the artisan skill that we really enjoyed, the artisan skill that you all built, that you practiced in your early years, you you'll practice lesser so. And as time goes by, you'll become maybe more of a general manager and not really get get in the middle of you know that deep practice stuff that you built your passion and career mm-hmm. for or on so in that new avatar where you're you're far removed from the fundamentals of what got you in that career and got you waking up every morning you got to figure out a new meaning for yourself and and most people forget that or detach mm-hmm. from that and it just becomes like a treadmill, right? You're constantly on this treadmill. But you got to figure out, well, hang on a moment. I don't even like my job anymore because I don't <laughs> do it. I'm doing something don't need to right. right? So catching yourself in that moment and being able to find your own version of how am I going to solve it is what I, what I ask people to think about very deliberately in my book. Okay, well, that is all the time we have. And I think that's a a fantastic point to end on. And again, I would encourage everyone to go out and pick up this book. It's called Give to Get. Um, We will have a link to this in the show notes over at arcpodnet.com forward slash CRM arc podcast forward slash 149. And really check this out. Vishal, thank you so much for coming on here. I hope we opened your opened your book up to a new audience that maybe you I'm willing to bet you didn't anticipate. <laughs> I'm really, guys, I can't thank you enough. I'm so thrilled by that. And some of my biggest return comes from, you know, getting out to the, the a, a base that I hadn't anticipated. And I must thank you for that. And if, if you get good feedback, if there are opportunities for, if you get together as a group mm-hmm. and there are opportunities for me to come out, speak to them or outreach in a different way. I would love that very much. I mean, for example, startups, you know, young people, I never thought about young entrepreneurs and, you know, fresh graduates or startup Mm -hmm. guys enjoying the read. And, and, you know, I, I get so much of feedback from a pretty diverse base and I'm so thankful for you. Yeah. I'm actually also part of a startup software company that's just about two years old right now and we're still building. Mm -hmm. And, and this, I, I've brought this up at some of our quarterly meetings, actually, uh, since I got the book. So it's, it's really applicable to a lot of facets of what we do. So, all right. Well, again, thank you, Vishal, so much for coming on. And for the audience, we'll have all these links in the show notes. And, um, and, and listen, if you're, if you're out there reading anything like this that you think maybe this doesn't have anything to do with archaeology, but, but it really does, and, and the business that we have here, then you know, let us know and, and we'll try to get these people on. So, again, thanks to my co-host and thank you, Vishal. Thank you all. 
That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. See ya. Bye. <laughs> I haven't heard from Doug this whole episode. He's counting, He's counting down, down again. Ah. He's counting. Oh, wait. He's gone back around. Whoa. He's going up. The numbers yes. are going up. Yes. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> there he is. I love it. All right. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.